Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome to the uh, Al Franken Podcast. Uh, This week I got something of a, a topical show. Most of our podcasts are are evergreen. They have a long shelf life. They're not tied to the events of, of the day. For example, last week we had Maria Teresa Kumar from Voto Latino on, and she, she talked about immigration and voter suppression, and those things will be kind of topical for a long time, unfortunately, I think. But today, I'm, the subject is so urgent, and the subject is the House of Representatives, how it's dealing with what is or isn't a constitutional crisis, and to me it is. I have two guests today, Dahlia Lithwick, a brilliant lawyer who writes about the courts for Slate. I was on the Judiciary Committee in the, uh, in the Senate, and my first week in the body, I was asking questions of now Justice Sonia Sotomayor in her confirmation hearing, and I made the argument that the Roberts Court, far from being an umpire, calling balls and strikes, it was an activist court. Now you hear that all the time. But I was kind of the first to make that argument, at least in a Supreme Court confirmation hearing, and here is what Dahlia Lithwick wrote for Slate about my questioning. Some of the only questioning along those lines came from Senator Al Franken, who made Sotomayor very uncomfortable as he grilled her on the Roberts Court's tendency to overreach. In this term's Voting Rights Act case, the court came close to striking down an act of Congress, and in an age discrimination case, it decided an issue that was never briefed. Franken politely asked Sotomayor, how often have you decided a case on an argument or a question that the parties have not briefed? He was wondering whether that constituted judicial activism. Good question. Why was the junior senator from Minnesota the one sworn in only a week ago, the first one asking it? That's why Dahlia's on on the podcast. And also uh, because she's one of those lawyers who's on MSNBC uh, all the time. And my other guest, Matt Miller, is on MSNBC so much he gets paid to be an MSNBC contributor. And Matt is not a lawyer, but he was spokesman for Eric Holder, of course, uh, Obama's attorney general, so he might as 
as well be. But actually, this is one of my complaints about how the media and Democrats in Congress are dealing with this whole Russia-Trump-Mueller report deal. And I'm afraid we're losing the argument. And one of the problems is what I call drama lack, the lack of drama. Every night on MSNBC, on every show, there's a host who introduces their panel, and it's Joining me is David Goldstein, former prosecutor from the Southern District of New York and an MSNBC contributor. Sarah Jensing, a former federal prosecutor from the Eastern District of New York and also an MSNBC contributor. And Lionel Schundler, a former federal prosecutor from the Western District of New York. And Lionel is also an MSNBC contributor. And then, you know, later Lionel will be saying, like, you know, Lawrence, I think that the uh, motion that Stone's lawyer filed today in the Northern District of Virginia is very interesting because I think it may signal that he may go down the road of a possible plea bargain. And Lawrence will say, that's that's fascinating. And it's not fascinating. It's not. I think we've got to be a little bit <laughs> more dramatic in our communication. A lot of people around Donald Trump have said that he resented the investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 election because it would undermine the legitimacy of his election. No kidding. You know why it would undermine the legitimacy of his victory? Because without Russian interference, Trump probably would have lost the election. He won Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin by a little over 100,000 votes total. Of course, we'll never know. We will never know. But I'm going to play two people who claim they know. The first is Vice President Mike Pence, and the second is former DHS Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. Russia meddled in our 2016 elections. And while no actual votes were changed, any attempt to interfere in our elections is an affront to our democracy and it will not be allowed. Although no actual votes were changed in 2016, let me be clear in this, any attempt to interfere in our elections is a direct attack on our democracy. Okay, how much does that insult your intelligence? How much did it insult the intelligence of everyone who knows, for example, that campaigns spend money for a reason to persuade people to vote for them, or at least not for their opponent, to connect with people digitally, to get out negative information about their opponent, to create ads from Fake organizations created by super PACs, which campaigns do all the time now since Citizens United. But in this case, fake organizations were created by Russians to target very specific voters. Like the organization Woke Blacks was aimed at African-Americans to get them not to vote for Killary. There's a reason that these things make a huge difference in a campaign, especially one that was this damn close. And how big an advantage does it give you to hack the other side's email and put out whichever part of their email that 
you'd like to put out at exactly the right time, say the day before the Democratic National Convention, to help your candidate and, and hurt the other. And at the end of the campaign, if you looked at Hillary's word cloud, it was one big word, emails. What, what do Pence and Nielsen say when they're handed the speech with the no votes changed in it? With that line. They, they know you can't say that. I mean, of course, votes change because of Russian interference and in one direction away from Hillary and toward Trump or Jill Stein or, or just no one. Do they think, well, you know, this is what the boss wants to believe. And besides, no one will remember this anyway. Well, I do. I remember it. And I want you to as well. And I want you to remember the kids, Kirsten Nielsen, separated from their families. And wasn't the national security advisor fired for lying to the vice president? But the vice president and the president feel perfectly free to lie constantly to the American people? And now the attorney general, to the point where the attorney general of the United States refuses to testify to the House Judiciary Committee which is because they know he has been lying about the Mueller report. He told the American people two hours before the Mueller report was released that the report concluded that the president fully cooperated with the special counsel. No, he, he didn't. And, and Barr said the report concluded that the Trump administration didn't collude with the Russians, the report said no such thing. As we know, collusion, it, there was collusion. According to the Mueller report, Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort periodically shared internal polling data with Konstantin Kalimnik, a Russian-Ukrainian, on the races in four key battleground states, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Now, our intelligence community has identified Kalimnik as someone with close ties to Russian intelligence, if not a Russian GRU agent himself. GRU is their CIA, their FBI, kind of a combo. I'm sure this data found its way to the Internet Research Agency, the Internet Trolling Center, run by the GRU out of St. Petersburg. The Russians micro-targeted Americans through Facebook and Twitter and other social media to convince them to vote for Trump or for Jill Stein or for no one at all. The Russians used Facebook to target African Americans in Philadelphia, in Detroit, and in Milwaukee who had shown an interest in Black Lives Matter. These voters... African Americans in Philadelphia, Detroit, and Milwaukee received email after email about Hillary's super predators remark. Remember that in 1994, she said there were super predators, and that was considered racist because that law did put a lot of people for very minor offenses in prison for a long time, and many of those... It was disproportionately African-American. So that was pounded, and this is why it made a difference. 
the undervote for African Americans in Detroit for president, that is the number who cast a vote down ballot but didn't cast a vote for president among African Americans in Detroit alone was over 70,000 votes. And Trump won Michigan by fewer than 12,000. Also remember that the Russians hacked the emails of the DNC and of Hillary's campaign chair, John Podesta, and released them through WikiLeaks at crucial times in the election cycle. The day before the gavel came down at the Democratic National Convention, WikiLeaks released the Russian hacked internal emails of the Democratic National Committee, emails which showed that some staffers at the DNC favored Hillary over Bernie. It's questionable whether and to what extent and in what way the personal views of DNC staffers expressed in those emails were acted upon, but they certainly gave Bernie supporters cause to believe that the DNC had put its thumb on the scale during the primary season. That doesn't happen without Russian hacking. And there is no question that many Bernie supporters just carried that resentment throughout the rest of the campaign and did not vote for Hillary when they otherwise probably would have. The Podesta emails that came out just a few hours after the Access Hollywood video, you know, which kind of suggested some coordination between WikiLeaks and the Trump campaign, specifically in the person of Roger Stone. Now, we don't know that from reading the Mueller report because the Stone indictment was part of the redacted material. But we do know this from the original Stone indictment. Here's what it said. During the summer of 2016, Stone spoke to senior Trump campaign officials about Organization One. Organization One is WikiLeaks. And information it might have had that would be damaging to the Clinton campaign. Stone was contacted by senior Trump campaign officials to inquire about future releases by Organization One. Stone was bragging to his friends. I just talked to Julian Assange. No collusion? Stone being a go-between for the Trump campaign and WikiLeaks, that's not, that's not collusion? Manafort handing over internal polling data from Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania is not collusion? Russian interference forever delegitimizes Trump's election, in my view. And here to discuss what we should do about it are Dahlia Lithwick from Slate, who writes about our courts and jurisprudence, and Matt Miller, the former spokesman for Attorney General Eric Holder. Now, Dahlia has a, a podcast herself, Amicus, which, which means friendly. And we're doing something with Amicus, which is we're both posting podcasts from this interview, which is very uh, amiable. Same route. Yes. Amicus, uh, I'm told that we pronounce the show wrong because we call the Slate podcast Amicus. But my Latin, my friends who are fluent in Latin say it's Amicus. 
uh, my Roman mm-hmm. friends. And, and uh, Justice Breyer, just to confound things, says it's amicus, not oh, amicus. Oh, Jesus Christ. Well. Name's, fucking Breyer. We're, okay. I mean, come we're, on. We're name, dro- we're name dropping already. Yeah. <laughs> but for the non-lawyers. <laughs> that's, yeah. okay. okay. Matt was right. That, that's Matt Miller, everybody. The, the, the non-lawyer who called you on it. <laughs> It's everyone knows who Justice Breyer is. I mean, they everyone listening to this, I think, I think. So, you know, Matt, of course, Dahlia, not a lawyer, but um, he, he called you on it. You know what? I, I heard Christie the other day. You didn't happen to see this with Sessions and Christie. I did. You did. Okay. How many times did he say Democrats just have to um, understand uh, that Trump won the election and and just uh, get over it. Well, he stole the election by cooperating, by colluding with the Russians. And Barr was lying. Mueller on page two, right? Yep. Says that we applied the framework of conspiracy law not the concept of collusion. Now, Dahlia, explain that, uh, what, please. No, just that there's no such thing as a formal legal matter as collusion, even though the president uses it as his go-to word. And so what he says is since that's got no formal legal salient meaning, we will use conspiracy law. So he essentially says, when everybody says that this is a binary question, collusion, no collusion, is legally immaterial to him. That's not a word. That's what he's saying. So, in fact, I read some of the, what the prosecutors in the, uh, wrote in the indictment for uh, Stone, and they say this. Uh, This is in the indictment. During the summer of 2016, Stone spoke to senior Trump campaign officials about Organization One and information it might have had that would be damaging to the Clinton campaign. Stone was contacted by senior Trump campaign officials to inquire about future releases by Organization One. And organization one is WikiLeaks. So, boy, that's not collusion? How is that not collusion? And listen to what Barr said in the press conference about this. And he put this in for a reason. The special counsel also investigated whether any member or affiliate of the Trump campaign encouraged or otherwise played a role in these dissemination efforts under applicable law publication of these types of materials would not be criminal unless the publisher also participated in the underlying hacking conspiracy here too the special counsel's report did not find that any person associated with the trump campaign illegally participated in the dissemination of the materials. I'm glad you caught that because his language was so carefully worded there. And it came after 
in that press conference, he went through the other things the Russians did. He went through the social media operation and then said the investigation found there was no collusion with the social media operation. He went through the hacking and said the investigation found there was no collusion with the hacking. Then when he got to this piece about the dissemination of the hacked emails, he didn't say there was no collusion. He used this very carefully worded line. You said um, that there no was applicable no applicable law. law. <laughs> and the section of the report that would contain that, that shows you what happened there is blacked out because it pertains to the ongoing Roger Stone case. So we don't actually know what it is that happened. Of course. In fact, that was not what I read about the charges and the indictment were not in the report. Right. Yeah, that's right. And so, because I'm fascinated with this, I'm convinced Stone was bragging everybody that he was talking to Assange. And how many hours, how long was it after uh, the Access Hollywood tape came out that the Podesta emails came out? Like two hours? Yeah, same day. I mean, you could argue that Assange could have known to do that, I suppose. But come on. Is the problem here that we don't have adequate conspiracy laws? I don't know if our legal framework for how we think about conspiracies and hacking and disseminating hacked material is sufficiently updated to deal with the current world. Over the last two years, the bar for acceptable presidential behavior has been basically set at outright criminality or not. This gets to the point you were talking about the conversation on cable, where you have former prosecutors asked, you know, they'll take something, take something the president did and say, well, would this be legal? And what we found out in the report is, at least with, let's leave the obstruction part aside for a minute, where I think he did violate the law, and the report makes clear he did that. On the collusion side... It seems possible that it is, you know, the president or the candidate for the presidency of the United States can basically operate in parallel to a Russian intelligence uh, operation. He can ask the Russians publicly to hack his opponent's emails. He can. That, that was a joke. Uh, yeah, of course it was a joke. Like so many jokes he made. He's funny. Yeah, sure he is. <laughs> He's a, he got a great sense of humor. He can, he can ask them um, publicly and it seems privately with his communications with Roger Stone to, to hack his opponent. Um, he can trumpet the results of that hack when they're made public. He can talk about WikiLeaks something like 140 times on the campaign love, trail. I love WikiLeaks. And, and as long as as you've never you know met with them and come to an explicit agreement, you haven't violated conspiracy law. And is the president an outright criminal or not? Is that the only bar we ought to have for the president of the United States? Oh, of course not. Of course not. But bar. Okay. So he says, and, and this is why I was disappointed with the way the questions were asked in the Judiciary Committee when he was before the Judiciary Committee, because he said that Trump completely cooperated, totally cooperated with the investigation. He fired Comey. He fired the head of the investigation. Then he ordered his legal counsel to tell Rosenstein to fire Mueller. And when he wouldn't do that, when McGahn wouldn't do that, he ordered McGahn to draw up a fake memo 
an untrue memo saying, I didn't ask you to do that, what I did. And he kept asking Sessions to unrecuse himself so he could fire Mueller. And as you pointed out before we just went on here, he didn't sit down for an interview. But my question in committee would have been this. You, uh, Mr. Barr, Mr. Attorney General, said that the uh, that Trump totally cooperated with with the investigation. And then I'd go through the, what I just went through, and I'd say, in Minnesota, firing the head of an investigation and then ordering your subordinates to fire the next head of the investigation isn't cooperating. And what I want to know is, do the people of South Carolina believe that, Mr. Chairman? Um, Because if they do, they're very, very, very different than the people in Minnesota. Okay, so Al? And how about the people in your damn state, Mr. Barr? (laughs) Yes, go ahead. Can I just point out that yeah. having opened with an indictment of MSNBC for bringing legal talking heads on to parse legal questions, we are now parsing legal questions, right? Like what we're doing is exactly the thing. Yeah, but we're doing it in an interesting <laughs> no, way. Well, okay. no, but that's, the, that's my point. <laughs> no, but my point is I think the thing that Matt just said, which is why are we taking at face value that there is a legitimate debate to be had about whether the president cooperated with the investigation? The, the mere fact that we are expending energy – Having a conversation about an assertion that was made about the president's willingness to cooperate with Mueller when in any rational world, we all know for all the reasons you just laid out, he failed to cooperate. Why are we having this debate on his ground? Why are we ceding the conversation to let's sit here and parse whether or not something we all know to be a lie is a lie. Why are we doing that? That's why we're because losing. Because it's the way you parse it. It's the way you parse it. And what I was saying and what I wrote to my former colleagues was we need some drama. So if you say to the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, are, are you really saying that the Attorney General is being square with us? Are you kidding me? Then people see that. And and they don't hear someone just saying, like, um, this is technically this, not technically that. What I'm saying is you need a little bit, and I'm not saying you got to yell. You can say, you can say, but you got to use a little human emotion. You have to understand the stakes of this. And the stakes of this are incredibly high. And this would have been about the attorney general is lying. He's lying. That makes a difference. It's about the attorney general lying to the American people before the release of the report 
So the American people aren't going to read the report. But they are going to watch TV. And we need somebody to dramatize what the hell is going on. And I don't like the Attorney General lying to everybody two hours before the release of the thing. My God. I mean, how... How infuriating is that? So so what you're saying is actually super interesting. I think Michelle Goldberg just wrote a really good column saying, if this is a constitutional crisis, Nancy Pelosi and Jerry Nadler, like you keep saying, why are we not acting like it? And, and I think one of the things that I'm hearing you say is that there's this weird split screen we're living in right now where people are running around saying, this is really, really bad. This is an existential crisis. And then, you know, we go to a vote, like we all leave the chamber to vote on something. Um, and, and I think that that's the problem, more even than the problem Matt identified, which is why are we only talking about crimes? It's that, like, it can't both be an existential catastrophe that the attorney general is perjuring himself before the committee and that like now we you know cut for a message from our sponsors and 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 we don't know how to talk about catastrophes and so we like sit in the makeup chair and we talk about the law and what you're saying is the level of whatever outrage fury drama should be commensurate with the problem and that's a that's a media problem that's not a constitutional problem if that makes any sense that is a media problem that's why i started with mm-hmm. the damn media mm-hmm. and also it it had to do with the hearings and you have to be able to get people's attention and make a moment and make a moment that people can understand easily. They understand that firing the head of investigation and then getting your subordinates, trying to get them to fire the guy, is not cooperating. They understand that. They do. And it's simple. And it's, it would get on TV. It would be replayed over and over again. Because there's no getting away from it. They have this problem where they think it's a crisis. They want to act like it's a crisis. The American public isn't quite there yet, and they're having a hard time figuring out how to get them there. I think they're getting there slowly. The way to get Don McGahn there is to start impeachment hearings. I have to say, I'm curious what you guys think about Nancy Pelosi's language of the president is impeaching himself. We don't have to impeach him because he's self-impeaching, like he's a self-cleaning oven. What does that even mean? What is Does that just mean that it obviates responsibility for the House to do anything? You know, what he's doing is unprecedented and withhold, what he's withholding. You know, you can say we're doing impeachment hearings because the president is making us because he won't hand over the thing that every other president has handed over. So it's his fault. We're not impeaching him necessarily. We're having things that are called impeachment hearings because he's being such a dick. 
Pelosi has a political problem, too. Look, the, the thing about impeachment is it is this unique thing that is a quasi-legal, quasi-political action. I, I think by any definition of on the legal side, if you look at the, the Nixon articles of impeachment or the Johnson articles of impeachment, clearly what Trump has done justifies impeachment if you just take the legal side of it. But on the political side of it, I don't know what Pelosi believes in her heart of hearts, and I don't know what she believes is the smart thing to do. I do know that she you know, runs a caucus, and in that caucus, there are a whole bunch of members who don't not only don't want to impeach the president, they don't want to talk about this at all. They come from more marginal districts. Some of them are freshmen, and they're making the political calculation, rightly or wrongly, and I, I, don't, I, I don't know whether they're right or wrong or not, that talking about impeachment and moving to impeachment hurts them. And as long as those members are in that place, it's very difficult for Pelosi to move forward. She could just roll them. The and, sooner and, she moves forward, the better if she's going to move forward. Well, that's true. Right? That's true. And so if you just say the president is making us have what are called impeachment hearings because he won't let McGahn testify, he won't turn over material that other presidents, every other president has turned over. He's making us do this. And then we have hearings where Don McGahn says, yeah, he told <laughs> he told me to write a, a, a memo and give it to the special counsel. That was a lie. Well, that's obstruction of justice. That's obstruction of justice. And everybody knows it. And the American people know it. But you got to hear it and you got to have this is, you know, this is Butterfield. This is John Dean. A majority of people were not for impeaching Nixon before the Watergate hearings began. So this gets to the constitutional crisis question. Um, Nixon didn't try to block those witnesses from going and testifying. Dean obviously wanted to testify, but Nixon could have gone to court and tried to block him. I'm sure that would have been unsuccessful, but he could have tried. He didn't he didn't block those witnesses from coming and testifying. We're in a different position now where this White House is blocking current employees and former employees from going to testify. Now, I wish Don McGahn would have a little courage and just say, I'm going to testify and I don't care about the president's assertion of executive privilege and he can sue me and try to block me and he'll he'll probably lose. But he's not doing that yet. It's a chicken and egg problem. They have to get the American public to a place they aren't right now. But to get them to where they aren't right now, they have to get some of these witnesses. And the only way to do that is to go to court and it's going to take time. Which of you made the really good point that that's the problem is that we need television to make this happen, the drama of television. And you know who's better at television than anybody? Donald Trump. Yeah, but it is very effective to have Don McGahn testifying. He's as Republican as you get. He told the truth to Mueller because uh, he didn't want to go to prison. So that's what he did. And so if he gets before the committee, he's got to tell the truth. And he will tell the truth. And that will be dramatic. And enough of those. And you've got yourself some really good TV. And so Donald Trump is really good at TV. But he, you know, when he closed down the government, he may have been good at TV. People did not like that. They're not going to like what they would hear in these hearings. They were not for impeachment before the Senate Watergate hearings, which weren't, obviously weren't impeachment hearings because they were in the Senate. 
Archibald Cox wasn't appointed until after those hearings began. The Democrats have the House. They've got to do this. Or you don't. I mean, but if you don't, then shut up about it and start talking about infrastructure and health care. And... Look, if they don't do anything, if there's no sanction for the president, even something like censure, which doesn't really do anything to the president, but at least would, for the, for the historical record, put the house on. Uh, yeah, yeah, what but, but, of, of course, <laughs> or if it's an impeachment that, that passes the house. They're but, really strong. Look, but, but you could say the same thing about impeachment. What does impeachment in the house if it's going to go nowhere in the Senate actually do? You could you could make the argument it's equally feckless. Um, um, it, here's it, the thing. Um, Susan Collins. I mean, it puts him under pressure. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And also, we haven't found out everything yet. <laughs> the stone stuff is really bad and we haven't this, there's stuff to uncover and stuff to see that's why yeah. another reason you have an investigation I, I completely agree and the point i was making if there is no further investigation if there's no sanction either impeachment that then fails in the senate or censure or something where congress is on record then basically what it means is that all of the president's behavior was okay by Congress. And future presidents can interfere with investigations into themselves. Future presidents can call on their political opponents to be investigated, as he did with Hillary Clinton. There's the point in the report about him asking Clinton to be investigated. That's not a crime. It's not obstruction of justice. I think it's an impeachable offense. If he gets away with it with no sanction, you're going to see him do it again. And you may see future presidents do it because the thing about norms is they change. And if he gets away with this, then the new norm is a president can do that. Mueller's failure to, whatever the reason, I know he did it because of the OLC guidance, but the failure to take that last step and say, and therefore this is obstruction, is a way of saying, keep going. And now when Nancy Pelosi says, oh, it's not, he's not worth it, he's not worth impeachment, the only thing he hears from his end is that I've just been granted an even larger swath of uh, power and behaviors than the, you know, the, the, the willingness to announce that we are seeding our checking functions because he's not worth it or because he's president. All it does is reinforce the completely cattywampus worldview in which he's accountable to nobody. The signaling around, well, we're just not going to do this for whatever reason. It has a real world effect on reinforcing the idea that he's untouchable. Hey, everybody, you're listening to the Al Franken podcast, and we're having a great time here <laughs> with Dahlia Lithwick and Matt Miller. It's been just, oh, God, I'm enjoying this. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to be in such a good mood. Uh, enjoy my evening tonight because uh, this has been fun. I mean, it really has. Hasn't it? Yeah. So that's why, but it's it's great to, it's it's great to talk about how we're screwed and we have no way out. We aren't. We aren't. It's why you have to do this. Think, you know who one of those future presidents could be? A second term Donald Trump, yeah. or a fourth term this Donald is, Trump. <laughs> that's right. Oh, but Al. Okay, so okay. If I could say that, I think so much of what's wrong is that we keep looking to the courts to save us. And this was the problem for all the months that we looked to Mueller to save us. And now we're like, okay, well, Mueller was completely ambiguous. So now we're looking to the courts. And the courts are the worst situated institution to check Donald Trump. I mean, 
for a million reasons, including the turtle reason. Which is why they have to have impeachment hearings. And they can say, look, he's not handing this stuff over. It's not us that's doing it. He's, he's self-impeaching. So that's what it means. So she's a genius. Yeah, I, I, um, Dolly, I think you're exactly right about both the courts won't save us, Mueller wouldn't save us. I don't think Congress is going to save us. At the end, if we're saved, and we may not be, scary as it is to think, it will, it will probably be voters. That said, I, I think if, if I were running the Judiciary Committee right now and I were running the House of Representatives, what I would do is I, I would have subpoenas going pretty soon to all of the important witnesses in that report so I could tee up contempt votes and move into the courts quickly. And I would make the argument that the old ways you've looked at this don't apply because you have uh, one branch that's not acting in good faith here. And so you need to move up quicker because their entire strategy is based on you delaying and behaving the way you usually do and hope that the courts don't give deference to the executive branch the way they usually do. And there, there's some precedent. In, in the travel ban cases, the courts didn't defer to the president initially the way that you usually would because it was clear to them the way he was acting was not on the level. And he ultimately won, but that was on version three that was significantly different. So you hope that the courts step in more quickly and move more quickly. And then in the meantime, while well, that's working out, and that will have to work out to get any of these executive branch witnesses before the committee, so the McGanns, the Donaldsons, I would have people like Corey Lewandowski, who's a key obstruction of justice witness, played in, in the attempt to get Sessions to to unrecuse himself. I would have Corey Lewandowski before a committee, and if he wants to take the fifth, he can take the fifth. Mm-hmm. I might immunize him and, and make him testify. I would call Donald Trump Jr. before the Judiciary Committee and make him testify. And again, it's a harder call to give him immunity. Mueller clearly didn't want to, but maybe I would. And then I'd look at people like Rick Gates and Mike Flynn. Gates is still cooperating on some things, but with respect to the Russia part of the investigation, that is over. Mike Flynn is over except for his cooperation in in this unrelated Turkey case. There's no reason those people can't appear and testify before a House committee. So while we're playing out on the obstruction side to get all these White House witnesses hopefully eventually cleared by the courts, I'd go down the list of everyone else who was an executive branch employee and have have one a week before the House committee. Why one a week? Fine, two a week, three a week, whatever. Remember Sam Irvin? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jerry Nadler, Sam Irvin. Jerry Nadler, Sam Irvin. You know what I'm saying? Cool. He, he, we had foghorn leghorn. <laughs> <laughs> we had this, I'm just a country lawyer. And then we have Jerry Nadler, who's a, a very smart, able lawyer and chairman, but we need some drama. And But we can do exactly what you're talking about and compel these people to testify if you do impeachment. Why are you guys just, like, ignoring me? I hear. That's what I hear. I say it, and then you go, yes, but you know what? Don't, you know, we're not going to do that. It's not a magic bullet. I'll be interested in Dolly's response, but moving to impeachment is not a magic bullet that suddenly means Don McGahn is before the test, the, the committee tomorrow. The The president will still try to block his testimony in the courts. And yeah, but from that, what I've heard, the, the House's legal position and their legal argument is strengthened if they have an impeachment inquiry open. But it doesn't necessarily mean the courts move any faster. I think that the question that... I have, I continue to have, is 40, what percent? 47 percent of Americans think Donald Trump committed crimes and they don't care. (laughs) And so I think what Nancy Pelosi is thinking to herself, 
is this just doesn't matter. What if nothing you're saying changes anyone's mind? This is the difference between now and Watergate and out something you wrote about a lot before you were in the Senate is that there is this entire conservative media, uh, you know, architecture on the other side now that just gives different news to different people. And there are enough Republicans who don't care. And I, I, I don't know what the tipping point would be that would make them care if they're hearing from Fox that everything's hunky dory. And as long as they're hearing from Fox that everything's hunky dory. Republicans in the House and Senate are going to behave that way. And so there's this fundamental question I've, I've, I don't remember who I heard, first heard ask it, which is if Fox News had existed in the 70s, would Nixon have gone? I'm not sure the answer is yes. Okay, well, that's a magical thought experiment, isn't it? Well, it's a magical thought experiment, <laughs> but, but it, you know, it applies to where, know, we, are. It applies it, to where we are today because <laughs> the answer does. so far is no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, we're out of we're getting out of time, everybody. But I want to <laughs> Dahlia Lithwick and all her her great listeners uh, from Amicus. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and Matt Miller. But I will see you both on MSNBC, along with a uh, former federal prosecutor from the Southern District of New York. So. Thanks, everybody. Wherever we are, wherever you're listening to this, have a good night, everybody. I actually think that's going to be a good show um, from my. Yeah, I think so too. Perch and despair land. But I kind of carry it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. And by we, I mean me. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. 
I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.